This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for joining in, whether you are listening to us live on radio or you are tuning into the podcast. We appreciate you listening to another hour of science. With me today is Dr. Lauren. She has Skyped in especially for this uh, Easter Sunday show. Dr. Lauren, welcome back. Thank you so much, Dr. Shane. It's great to be chatting to you again. I feel like I may have been roped in just because everyone else is on holidays, but <laughs> I'll take that. I'll yeah, take no, that's, that's great. Um, good, good, to, good to have you back in the studio. Well, more or less, virtually at least. Yeah. And we should say, I've folks, if, uh, if you were expecting a different show, that's because you haven't uh, changed your your time as yet it is uh, the daylight savings <laughs> clocks have gone back today so um fix that up but this is einstein a go-go if you're i don't know i guess they would have been expecting eat it uh, anyway yeah um yep <laughs> now you're you're still in boston how are you i am well i'm, I'm actually i'm in upstate new york actually oh, yeah. okay. so i'm over um yeah yep so i'm all over the place at the moment but um yeah so based at cornell university so in ithaca upstate new york uh it's beautiful it's ridiculously cold winters um you know we've had to get used to shoveling snow and riding our bikes through weight you know knee height snow but it's been great now you've got to tell us what you're up to there because uh, we were sad to see you leave and you're gone for a couple of years hopefully you'll get sick of the place and come back um but what <laughs> what are you what are you doing there i mean why did you move yeah, so look, I've, I've really been given a great opportunity here. So I, um, a lot of our listeners that listen regularly might remember that I work on the Bionic Eye. So it's an electronic device that goes into the eye to give back some sight to people that lose their vision from certain eye diseases. And so I worked with the Australian group for about eight years, actually, on that project. And throughout that time was working with a good, good friend and colleague at Harvard University, and they were developing a different type of Bionic guy and so when they started to get closer to the time when they wanted to start testing in patients they actually formed a startup company so it's a small medical device company that's taking the research from harvard cornell and mit and yeah moving forward with that one so it's a you know a similar sort of device that i'm working on but totally different team totally different sort of research it's been very exciting and what lauren what role do you play because it seems Mm. i suppose quite special that you've been able to go from one type of approach one approach towards the binary guide just to to another one and slot it into that one you know seamlessly How, how has how has that worked yeah, so it's been very lucky because of the sort of research I do. So I'm a clinician originally, and so I'm really interested in how you actually test whether or not these devices make any difference. So my research and my work has always been about coming up with tests that you can give to someone that's got a bionic eye to see whether or not they can see better than they were before. And so my role over here is really getting them ready for their clinical trials. So I'm going to be looking for people that want to be involved doing all the screening tests, all of the medical examinations to see whether or not they're eligible and then running them through all of those tests and, and the follow-up to make sure that, you know, this bionic eye does give them back some vision as well. And these are, these are people presumably that had vision at one point and have lost it. So does that, uh, presumably that makes the, the testing, um, well, it frames the testing in a way, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who's never had vision 
who presumably yeah. would have a lot of trouble describing what they were for the first time seeing. Yeah, oh, definitely. And it's an excellent question because one of the really interesting thing is that people that don't have vision or that have lost their vision, sometimes they are still very visual people. So mm-hmm. so there's okay. one, one lady I used to work with and I used to love it because she would describe, you know, everything that people said to her, she would really see it in her mind as a visual image. Uh, and so for her, doing the rehabilitation and training with a bionic eye is really different to someone else who, when they started to lose their vision, it didn't, it became less important to them. So some people then, you know, become more reliant on on sound or on tactile cues. And so they, you know, think about vision differently. So it, it can be really challenging to come up with a sort of generic program that suits everyone yeah this is a you know one of those standard dumb media questions that, that is always asked but how <laughs> i mean how, how far off are we with this stuff i mean if we, if we think yeah. back to the timing around the bionic ear you know it took quite a few years but you know mm. that's been the reality now for decades it's quite you know it mm. continues to progress but it's extraordinary i mean the bionic eye i mean how far off are we and i suppose the real question there is at the point where you say, yes, this person has a bionic eye, what sort of vision would they have? Yeah. So so it's um it's moving really quickly. So I've been in the field for about, yeah, nine years now. And when it started, to me, it did seem like science fiction. But it's now uh, we have three devices that are commercially available in, in the US and in Europe. You, you can't buy a bionic eye in Australia yet, but mm-hmm. probably won't be too far away. Uh, but the devices still are quite basic. So they take the level of vision from someone that has no vision at all. And the best way I can think of to describe it is if you close your eyes, that's the baseline. So if there's a really bright light in the room, people Mm -hmm. are aware it's there, but they can't see any objects and shapes. And so that's the baseline. The devices at the moment give people the ability to see large objects, kind of make out where a doorway might be. But it's very basic. It's just a few spots of light they can use just to do that. And so the challenge really now is how do we improve that and get it to a level where you can give it to someone who is in the earlier stage of disease. So they might still have a little bit of vision left. We want to get to a point where a device can still help them. Mm. But it is, it's moving quickly. So there's a Think, I think the numbers now are about 200 people around the world have had a bionic eye. And they've just recently started trials uh, with different types of eye diseases. So people that have a condition called macular degeneration, where they lose their central vision, some of those people are now trialling these bionic eye devices as well. Mm. So it's, it is, yeah, it's an incredibly tricky question, that whole idea of timing. But the changes that we've seen in the last five years are, are faster than I expected. So, you know, I think the next five. Yeah be pretty exciting oh it's fascinating stuff what what's the restriction in terms of that limitation so i can i can get Mm. a bionic eye and i can see doorways so open open Mm. or closed doorways or or large objects in in my in my way what's Mm. the restriction between that and getting to the point where i can see i'm not sure if this is the right example but the doorknob Mm. on the door um yeah yeah. what's, what's holding holding us back in terms of the i guess the ultimate resolution there Yeah, so it's mainly that the eye is just so complex. Uh, So the bionic ear, for example, the the hair cells in the ear, in the cochlea, is what you're trying to stimulate with the electrodes. And 
top of my head, I can't remember the exact numbers, but roughly we're talking about 10,000 hair cells that mm-hmm. need to be simulated. Apologies to any of my auditory colleagues that are listening if I got that wrong. Um, but the retina, it's more like a million. Wow. So yep. it's much, much more, uh, you know, complex tissue. And the trick at the moment is that the electrodes that we put into the eye are really large. Like they're, they're very small, but they're very large compared to the size of the cells that we want to stimulate. Yeah. So when you go to stimulate the retina, you actually stimulate quite a large region. So in the retina, there's cells that turn on for light, cells that turn off when there's light. And if you're kind of hitting a large zone at once, it's really hard to get that fine resolution. So so what are you doing in in the back of the eye there? Are you you replacing the function of those cells or are you sending a signal to those cells? What what part is the the bionic part replacing in the eye? Yeah. So there's, um, again, this is where all the different groups are coming in because all the different groups um, are looking at devices in different parts of the retina. But the trick with most of the people that we're working with, they um, have these diseases where you only lose the photoreceptors in the retina. And so the inner retinal cells, all of the sort of connecting neurons are relatively intact. So what we're basically trying to do is use electrodes to replace the photoreceptor function. And that's all really nice and in theory, uh, but what also happens is when you lose those photoreceptors, those inner neurons actually change as well. And you can imagine that that, that makes sense. They're not just going to stay in their same structure. So there's a bit of migration, there's a bit of change of function, and that also is why the resolution isn't quite as good as the theories may suggest. Mm. Oh, look, we, we could just talk about binary guys all day. Uh, but look, now, good, good. do you remember how to do news? Like we usually <laughs> in this part of the show, we, we give people some some news. I'm not sure if you remember how to do that. It's been a while for you. <laughs> it, it's been a little strange actually because it used to be my every week I would be looking at all of the yeah. newspapers, and the science news, and kind of got a little bit out of the habit terribly, but. <laughs> But no, I actually, well, my news this week is actually one that um, a colleague at work was telling me about. And it was something that was published at a conference uh, a, a few weeks ago and is very controversial. And it's this idea of uh, human and animal chimeras. So we're looking at, um, you know, sort of getting a little bit ethical, a little bit, you know, controversial for our Easter weekend. Um, But this particular research that's just been published is actually looking at using uh, human cells and growing human organs in a sheep model. And so what the scientists did is they actually used CRISPR, that wonderful technology we talk about a lot, and they turned off the genetic pathway for the development of specific organs. So they looked at the heart and the liver in this particular study. So they made it so that the sheep wouldn't grow a liver. And then the embryo was actually injected with human cells that were undifferentiated. And then they basically switched those on to become the liver. Wow. So the idea with this is that we're you know trying to grow a human liver in a sheep model. Uh, the... Obviously, the idea with it is to grow them for medical purposes, so for for human transplants. And something that my colleague at work was saying, which I didn't realise, is that um, in the US, someone actually goes on the organ waiting list every 10 minutes. So it's a huge issue. And obviously, we just can't meet that demand with donations from humans. I was going to ask, what's what's the corresponding, how often does someone go on the organ donor list? I'm sure it's not every 10 minutes. Yeah, well, that's true. Mm. That's true. And that's the problem too, isn't mm. it? And I mean, that's a whole other whole other discussion, really. 
Um, but yeah, so it was, it's a very so it was a very interesting discussion with this colleague actually. And then when I read into the news a bit more. You know, it is still very early in the process. So in this particular study, they found that one in 10,000 cells in the sheep embryo ended up being of human origin. And for it to actually work, so to actually grow a human liver, you'd need more like one in 100. Mm. So the technology isn't quite there yet to actually be able to do that. But it's an interesting milestone because all of a sudden it shows that this could be feasible and all of a sudden it means that, you know, ethicists and researchers and the general public need to start really thinking about whether this is something that that we want to do or not. Yeah, look, it's great stuff. Uh, I I just wanted to quickly mention um, some of the latest data coming out of the NASA Juno Juno spacecraft, which is the one that's hanging around Jupiter at the moment and it's sending back all those spectacular pictures. One of the things that's so interesting here is that when they look at the polar regions of Jupiter, which we we didn't have any information on before because no craft had taken photographs of those regions, we were kind of expecting something similar to what we saw on Saturn. And if you remember correctly, on Saturn there was that beautiful sort of pentagon or hexagon, I'm trying to remember, but that geometric sort of storm shape um, around yeah. the pole, which was quite amazing. And it looks almost artificial. It's quite, quite, you have to look at the beauty of how such a shape is created in nature. But instead mm. of finding that, what they've found instead is essentially an array of, of sort of cyclones around the, the North and South Pole. So there's mm. on the, I think it's the, um, the North Pole that has like um, six of them and the South Pole has like five. And so mm. they are arranged in that pentagon and hexagon pattern but there's not one um there's like five with one in the middle and and six and so they still are arranged in this weird shape but there's a series of them and they don't look like they're you know going away anytime soon these things are are there long term but it's Mm. just incredible to see these and and the, the great thing about the juno spacecraft is it can make all these different measurements with regards to understanding the the, the gravity um that it sees mm. around jupiter and, and gravity is great because you can you can use it to to look through opaque clouds and so forth so they can mm-hmm. see how deep these things go down and it, it's just incredible they weren't expecting to mm. see such complex patterns around the poles of jupiter um the researchers yeah. you know in the nasa team here were expecting to see um, something more like what they saw at Saturn. Um, so that, that's yeah. been reported in, in the journal Nature over the last few weeks, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. I, I think every time we look at these objects, we, you know, we thought we kind of knew what Jupiter looked like until we looked mm. at the poles, and that, yeah. that one big red spot all of a sudden is almost the boring part of Jupiter. The, yeah. the rest <laughs> is just extraordinary. So, I mean, that, it, it's amazing how much more you can get when you put a probe in orbit of a planet as opposed yeah. to doing a flyby of a planet, which is what what's happened, you know, in the past with um, Voyager one and two, for example, they didn't orbit mm-hmm. these planets; they just flew by. So once you get into orbit, you can do all sorts of things because you're there for a while. It so is it's, amazing. It's yeah. really cool stuff, <laughs> folks. We're yeah. going to take a break, uh, and we'll be back in a moment with a fantastic uh, interview uh, with a lady from the University of Southern California. We're talking about Twitter and how scientists use it. So stick around. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. Three, triple, ah. 
Our guest today is Sarah Majarid. She's a lecturer of engineering writing and medical education at the University of Southern California. Sarah, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, uh, we're doing this interview via Skype, so hopefully the uh, sound quality will remain good for us. First of all, give us a bit on your background, because your particular uh, title and job is not something that we hear a lot. So how did you get from wherever you started to, to the job you're in now? My background is a little bit unusual. So I went to college for psychology, and in graduate school, I studied corporate and organizational communications. Um, I got involved in science communication when I was working at Caltech in an administrative role, and I happened to meet a professor in chemical engineering who thought my background was fairly unique, especially considering the campus's specialties. So we collaborated and formed a course called Social Media for Scientists, and from there, I've gotten extensively involved in science communication, particularly around uh, digital communication. So I came to USC last summer, and I have been building a program in science communication since then. And I'm also currently working at the medical campus, teaching a component of medical communication. So given your sort of more corporate background, you've come into the sort of science communication realm from a, from a very different angle. I mean, often when we talk to science communicators, they're people who, you know, much like myself, who at some stage were, were often scientists, sometimes scientists for a long time, sometimes, you know, they just finished their undergraduate degrees and went into communications degrees. But, but you've come from completely outside of, of science. And as you said, I mean, Caltech is all about science. So what perspective did you have on, on the way science was being communicated when you first started entering, entering the field? I thought there was a lot of work to be done. But to be honest with you, since my background isn't in science, I felt that I, I needed to partner and work with somebody who had that understanding of the field. So the professor that I partnered with is Mark Davis, and he's in the chemical engineering department there. His specialties are nanotechnology and catalysis, and he has done in all sorts of presentations around the world, and he's done TED Talks, and he's very, very well-versed in the scientific fields. So I think partnering with him has been pretty instrumental in filling the gap in understanding the scientific field and where my help can be um, best or where my work can be best suited. Have you had to go back and do science courses that you maybe didn't do before to sort of uh, just up your knowledge? I mean, there's so much jargon you must be encountering. I thought about it initially, but I think actually my background not being in science has been a bit of a strength because I tend to see things a little bit differently. So when working with scientists, I may look at words and that I would perceive to be problematic, and they tend to have a different perspective on it. I, I gave a workshop last summer at the University of Delaware, and we went through and worked on a paragraph on uh, biofuels. And there were a couple of words that really struck out to me as being problematic for a general audience, and the, um, the scientists that I was working with, they, they had a different perspective. So we sort of went back and forth and finding what would be a happy medium and using jargon. Mm. 
It's fascinating hearing that. It, it's it's something that I think about a lot, especially like you mentioned, nanotechnology, and many of the areas of science that we play in have these these ranges of sizes that we don't normally encounter in our everyday life. I mean, what's your sort of methodology for getting that across to the public? Because when you when you talk about nanometers or you talk about galactic scales, no one has a frame of reference. How do you get past that? I can't take credit for this. Dr. Davis has an amazing approach to explaining the scale of nanotechnology. He, he gave a Senate testimony a number of years back and had to think about this problem strategically. So he compared the scale of a, a, a nanometer to, say, a, a basketball. And he moved up all the way to um, putting the basketballs into a blimp and how much it would be able to carry so it, it was a really clever analogy that he made. And I think encouraging scientists to think in that perspective, use tools and analogies that the public is familiar with, is uh, one of the approaches that I have. Now, you mentioned medical education as well. What, what exactly do you teach them? Because there's so many parts to the sort of communication spectrum. There's the writing, there's the speaking, there's the teaching, um, the interaction with patients. There's all of that together. Which components do you teach or do you teach them all? This is an area that I'm developing. Luckily, I have a lot of support up there with the current curriculum committee. Uh, my approach has been to teach the first years and the third years this uh, past year. So what I did with the third years is get them to think about what it's like to be a, uh, a, a medical professional. They're going into their clinical rotations, so they're starting to have more involvement with patients. And I'm trying to get them to prepare for interactions that are going to happen online. So what they should do is say a patient friends them or a patient reaches out and follows up uh, via the internet or email. And because these things are happening, I speak with physicians all the time. And an interesting case that recently came up was one told me that he had a patient come in for a consultation and the patient was live streaming. So he wow. had yeah. a patient other people chiming in. And these technology is really changing our interactions. So I encourage students to think about this. And it's been a pretty unique approach because as far as I am aware, there aren't any medical schools in the U.S. that are teaching this type of curriculum or even thinking about it. My approach with the first years has been to have them thinking about e-professionalism. So transitioning from being someone outside of uh the, the medical fields into a, a more professional role because the public has a tremendous amount of trust in medical professionals and we want to make sure that that trust is maintained. So now as a professional medical student, they need to be thinking about what their online presence looks like, looks like and whether or not it reflects the profession that they are going to be moving into. Um, I'd say that those are the two themes so far, and I'm mm -hmm. developing a number of them as well. And it, this is a program that's going to be um, evolving and coming out over the next few years. Yeah. And I, I intend to teach each year of um, medical students. It, it's fascinating to me that prediction model in the sense you have to put in place with regards to what medical interactions with patients will look like in the future and trying to prepare these doctors in a way that they won't see 
these interactions as devaluing their knowledge or taking them out of the system, but in a sense, moving them into a different part of the system. You know, the idea that you could even have a conversation where on the other end of your phone is an AI system giving advice and giving feedback. And this, I mean, this is something that with our current trained medical profession, they would see as extremely problematic, I suspect. So you're getting that next generation into a mindset that says it's okay, it's going to be really tricky. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned the AI component. I I run a PhD seminar series, and this month's uh, focus was on AI. And the conversation that followed was fascinating. We got into biomedical, one of the students is in biomedical engineering, and he proposed the question, what's the future going to look like with AI in terms of medicine? We have uh, computers that are capable of now looking at different scans and finding issues, whereas the naked eye um, is unable to see that. So will computers eventually be replacing a doctor uh, diagnosing a condition. And the conversation that followed was just fascinating. Everybody had a different perspective on this. But I think by the end of it, the consensus was uh, human diagnosis will never be replaced by AI. However, it will complement it. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that area. I, I always give a very specific example on that note when I'm talking to students and so forth. And that is, I want the ophthalmologist to determine whether or not I should have laser eye surgery, but I don't want them controlling the laser. I want the computer doing that. And so there's the two components there. You know, one is obviously a really clear assessment of the whole person, what's needed, what's good for them. But in terms of those, you know, literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of corrections a minute that need to be done to accurately shave off part of your cornea with a laser, I do not want a human being doing that. That's, you know, that's a completely different game. I'm with you on that one. Now, let's jump into the other area that you teach in, and this, of course, is relevant to how I I came across your work because I found you on Twitter, um, which means you you must have said something interesting on Twitter at some stage. Either that or you just said a lot of things that weren't interesting and I got tired of reading them and eventually we made contact. But you you look at how science uses Twitter. So talk me through that because I think we see a huge variation in the quality and style of use of Twitter by scientists and it seems, you know, I hate to use the term unregulated, but there's really no real formal training or mechanism to teach people how to do this. It's kind of, you know, just people just copying other people. Right. Um, I'm a little bit biased. You did mention Twitter. This is a platform that I go to because I think in terms of the science and academic community, those who are currently online are very supportive So it's a great place for people who um, may be a little bit shy uh, about using social media for science communication. It's a good place to start. And you're absolutely right. It is a bit unregulated in the sense that you do not go to Twitter for um, a very rigorous peer review. But I will say that it is where I get my information, and that's because I've uh, found key people to follow and can trust their information. Um, Oftentimes, I follow people who are sharing uh, information from scholarly journals, so that tends to make a difference. There are things that you can look for and assure that the information is actually quality. So, um, so talk us through that. Um, what, what do you look for in terms of making sure the information is quality on Twitter? Well, I look for uh, 
uh, in the bio, if they have information linking to um, a credible university or company, that's a good place to start to see what type of tweets they're putting out, um, what type of articles they're sharing, whether or not you consider them to be reputable sources. And just uh, starting from there, I think, I, I tend to do a general look over. Of course, the, the question always comes up about verified accounts. And I think that um, social media platforms are reconsidering what accounts they choose to verify because that can come across as confusing to people. Mm. When people say that something's verified, they automatically assume that it's a trustworthy source when in fact that's not the case at all. So talk us through verification because I think a lot of people probably aren't aware of what this means. This means that Twitter as a company has said that account belongs to you, a person, Sarah, and they have sort of agreed to that connection. Is that, is that right? That's correct. And the whole reason this started was actually a very interesting case. I teach a case study on this in my course. So back in 2009, a, I believe he was a coach for um, a baseball team. He found a, a an account that was using his name and putting out tweets about the team that were uh, humorous, but he did not find them humorous, to say the least. They um, covered things that were a little bit touchy. So I believe his last name was LaRusa. And so LaRusa went to Twitter and said, this is defamation. This is not me. I'd like this account removed. And that's when they really started to think about what information is being put out there, whether they'd allow parody accounts and um, that's sort of where the whole idea of verified accounts came from. Verification means that exactly what you said. This person is who they say they are. So it works well for celebrities and well-known people in the public. Um, but it tended to move in a different direction. People saw verification as almost clout, and that became mm. an issue. Yeah, I suppose connected to the, the number of followers you have, if you have a certain number, your verification easier to obtain, presumably? You know, I'm not really sure what goes into it uh, behind the scenes, but I know that you have to have uh, a, a website, which oh, right. <laughs> I mean, anything on a website. And But other than that, I'm not entirely clear mm. about how they consider what accounts to verify. The website's kind of old school. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, when you teach uh, scientists and engineers the use of Twitter, I mean, what, what sort of things do you teach them in terms of how to effectively use it to propagate their career? Because I think that's one of the things that, you know, many would love to know how do they go about this. It's, it's one thing to get on Twitter and scream about the latest grant that you didn't get, but it's another thing to use it to effectively promote yourself through your career phases. I agree. I, I think that the first thing that scientists and engineers need to consider is what are their goals for going online. And those goals can be very different. It could be wanting to inform the public, uh, connecting with others in the field, and just getting information out about their current research. I think those are three very different goals. So understanding what the motivation is and sticking to that is an important place to start. Um, oftentimes, I will speak with scientists and say, okay, what, what do you want to get out of this? And they'll just say, well, I'm supposed to communicate. I'm supposed to get my information out there. But I think the goal needs to be much more connected and much more specific than that. Mm. Uh, and 
Did that address your question? Yeah, yeah. Is is it something that um, I suppose that the nuance there is important? So, I mean, there must be times where, for example, it's appropriate to, you know, tweet the hell out of something you're doing. Um, but then there must be other times where the advice would be, you know, you, you really shouldn't be putting this online. This is at the wrong time in the publication cycle or in the grant cycle. I mean, is that because it seems as though with the freedom that comes with Twitter, I suspect a lot of people would be like, well, this is just a free platform. I can I can do whatever I want whenever I want without those sort of normal rules where we would have in the past maybe not spoken about that research at the conference because, you know, we hadn't quite finished it. Are you seeing that same sort of transition where people are, you know, dealing with Twitter in the same way they deal with other forms of communication? I haven't seen that firsthand, but I've heard of many cases where that has been occurring. There's a case specifically a few years ago at NASA where an intern was putting out information regarding an upcoming launch. And this person, while they weren't violating any rules in putting that information out there, Uh, They were spoken to because the social media teams felt that this wasn't necessarily the intern's story to be telling. There were uh, so many people who had dedicated their lives towards making sure that everything was going as planned. So he or she should rethink whether or not it's appropriate to be putting that information out there. Now, that's one case. There are cases, too, of people who have tweeted information prior to it being published. So I always advise students when I'm working with them, make sure you check with your PI, make sure you speak to other people about what you intend to put out on your Twitter feed, just so that there aren't any mistakes made in the process that sacrifices all the hard work you put out into this. Um, and the other part of your question, I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. Um, it was just really around the, the idea of making sure that people know, know that um, to strategically use Twitter, you need to be aware of where that cycle of information, where in the cycle of information flow you're at. And we do that for other things, but um, we don't quite do it for Twitter. So I think you, you pretty much covered that. Um, now, the other area I want to jump into, because I think this is fascinating, we, we, we had a pre-chat, um, for everyone out there listening, we had a pre-chat a week ago, Sarah and I, and, and she told me about this amazing conference that she went to. I think this is this is a science communicator going well beyond the call of what you should normally have to do. But you went to a Flat Earthers conference. You've got to talk us through that. I mean, first of all, why did you go to this conference? Sure. So, again, the, the course that I teach is very case study based. So I have a case study on Flat Earth Society and the interaction between a rapper here in the U.S., his name is B.O.B., and how he interacted with Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter. So this case is something that I'm going to be using in the book that I'm currently writing for Cambridge University Press. And I felt like there was more information to gather about this. Um, I... My approach to teaching it has been, this is an example of misinformation that's not harmful. Since attending this meeting, I've completely shifted my opinion of it. So, so it's ha- it is harmful? It is harmful. Right, okay, yes. yeah, okay, talk us through it. So I, I found a 
flat earth meeting that was occurring um, on the west side in Los Angeles. And I found that there were about 20 people who were attending it. It was just a very informal gathering um, at a restaurant. And I decided to attend with a friend. Going into it, I had several assumptions about flat earthers, who these people were and what they believed in. And all of those assumptions were challenged and changed So just to walk you through some of the things that I was thinking was flat earthers are focused on one conspiracy. They believe in flat earth and that's their main stick. And there's a consensus among everybody. Everybody belongs to the flat earth society. Uh, They would be unwelcoming or hostile of people who believe in uh, around earth. And... Again, as I'd mentioned before, this is harmless misinformation. So I stayed for two hours, and in the course of that time, all of those assumptions were completely changed. And basically what had happened was I spent a lot of time listening. My approach was to go in and uh, let them know that I was a skeptic, that I was considering different options, but really just listen in on what this meeting was and what conversations were occurring. So, Sarah, can I just ask you there, just to interrupt, um, you call yourself a skeptic, but are they the, do they call themselves skeptics? Of Is that how they no. perceive it? No. What was surprising was they said that they were conspiracy theory believers. Wow. Going to this, I thought that that would be a derogatory term because if... If the earth is flat, why would you consider yourself a conspiracy believer? Uh, but they almost touted this as being, yeah, I believe in this. And of course, it's a conspiracy theory, and it, it wasn't a derogatory term at all, um, which I found fascinating. So throughout the conversation, what I found most interesting was the fact that they are multi-conspiracy believers. Nobody specifically and purely believed in con- in flat earth there were all these other elements that came with it particularly around a distrust for the government and a belief in the illuminati these sorts of things so that was really fascinating and i also found that most if not all of the attendees did not live locally so i think my friend and i had the shortest drive we drove the uh 30 45 minutes and people were coming as far as three hours away so yeah, they were from all over, and um, that it, it, I think a total of 10 or 15 people showed up by the end of it. Is that all of them? All of them? <laughs> In the world? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, have you got an uh, idea of that? Like, what's, I mean, how many, how many people are out there that honestly, I mean, I assume these people very sincerely believe that the Earth is flat. I mean, how many people are there in the United States that think that the Earth is flat? I'm not sure within the United States, but if you go on Facebook and look up Flat Earth Society, I believe there's over 80,000 likes on the page. And whether or not these are likes that are people who are following it because they find it interesting or actually believe in Flat Earth, it's unclear. But there is a annual conference that occurs, and that's in Denver, Colorado. And it's occurring in, I think, October or November this year. That's been getting a lot of press, so I imagine that attendance will be a bit higher this year. People are people are talking around all around the world about it. I believe, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I think this really helped me as a science communicator in attending this because I'm sure you've heard the phrase over and over again, know your audience. Mm. Uh, Every science communicator can preach that, but what it is a scientist is supposed to know about their audience, I think is people need to dive a little bit deeper. So in in going to this, my own challenges were, um, my own assumptions were challenged. And so for me, I learned a lot of things about flat earthers, and it, it showed me that in getting to know your audience, you need to spend time listening. You yeah. need to understand concerns, where they're coming from, why they're coming from this perspective. And I think only there can you start to have a conversation and build trust and hopefully uh, get your message across. So, Sarah, when when we we started talking about this, you mentioned that it was harmless, and you, you said that that assumption has been changed a bit. But if we if we track across now to something like immunization and vaccinations, um, this is not harmless. This is an area where you know potentially great harm is done um, to a lot of people if this is if this is not one of the science communication battles that we win. So, how do you translate the sort of information that that different mindset, the, the way you've been challenged at the Flat Earther meeting to how you approach something like promoting vaccinations? So um, it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned the anti-vaxxers because that's the case that I follow in my course is saying this is an example of harmful misinformation. And I think the two are very much so intertwined because, in fact, a lot of the, fa- the Flat Earthers I met with are all anti-vaxxers. So in... Again, I think in getting to know your audience and understanding their concerns and where those beliefs start to become ingrained in who the person is, um, is really instrumental in being successful in um, science communication. And with that, too, I think combating misinformation is very, very difficult, and it's not always going to be... um, you as a communicator are not always going to be effective. Some people are just going to be very stuck in their beliefs and unwilling to consider different perspectives. So I think people need to prepare for that and also be aware that you cannot debunk these myths with just one conversation. You have to build up that trust and that engagement with the individual, and it takes a lot of time. Um, Debunking is not something that will just happen within a few minutes. Mm. Do, do you think the approach people have been taking in this space at the moment is the right one or does that need to shift? I mean, it almost feels at times like we're just continually losing ground in this argument because we as scientists tend to follow a set of rules that those who are against vaccinations do not. And it's not quite a level playing field. Right. I agree with you 100%. It isn't. And I think that scientists often come from the perspective of the deficit model. Well, these people just don't have the right information. So if I, if I give them more information, then of course they're going to believe that you need to vaccinate your children. But that's not the case. And I, I think we need to seriously consider our current approach and how we can better understand people and better communicate. I often point people to the debunking handbook, which is a great resource. It's free. It's online. If you just Google debunking handbook, it will come up. And it really goes through and talks about the different ways to 
uh, approach mis misinformation. It's relevant to, um, the focus is on climate change, but I think it's relevant to other areas of misinformation because it goes through the cognitive process that um, happens when you're trying to debunk a myth. So the deficit model doesn't work because just giving somebody information isn't enough. You need to tie it to a narrative and put more information behind it so that it actually stores in the person's mind. And so that's why storytelling comes up quite a bit in science communication and why it's important. Um, there's a component of how we store memories. Mm. Sarah, look, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you about some of this stuff. And I think um, the more we dive into the, the nuance and, and the real detail of how to communicate and the psychology behind our audiences and so forth, the, the better off we'll be. Now, before we let you go, though, tell us um, how can people find you online as I did on Twitter? Where, where, where would they go? Sure. So Twitter is a great place to interact with me. Um, my handle is S A R A H underscore M-O-J-A-R-A-D. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Great. Sarah, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the ongoing work and, and the war to get all scientists communicating uh, in a way that's effective and, and really helps the public. Um, it's great to hear that someone from outside the traditional realm is, is doing this. I think you bring a very unique um, perspective and it was great having you on Triple R. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Three. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're pretty much out of time. Dr. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us all the way from somewhere in northern state of New York. Is that right? <laughs> Somewhere up there. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to be back on and I miss you all and I hope everyone's having a great time this Easter. Yeah, we hope you're freezing your butt off there um, as payment for leaving. <laughs> better. I, I want some video though. Can you get your husband to send us, get Jared to send us some video of you trying to ride a bike through half a metre of snow? <laughs> I think that would be... I can certainly do that. That would be good. Folks, uh, hope you're having a great uh, holiday weekend. Uh, most of our team is all, all on holidays, but Lauren and I decided that we should still put the show to air. And a big thank you to our guest today from the from uh, the US, not not Dr. Lauren, the other guest, um, <laughs> for talking to us all about Twitter and science and so other fabulous stuff. Lauren, we will chat again soon. We'll get you in uh, in the coming months and... Um, you know, we'll, we'll hound you until you're available. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Folks, uh, we're going to leave you now with the team from Eat It. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Remember, if uh, you miss part of the show, you can always log on to your phone and download the podcast. Just do a search for Einstein and Gogo in your podcast app and you will find us easily. Until next week, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, science is everywhere and thank you for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.